Great to see you all here this morning uh, for the second part of our series on biblical justice. Now, we spent a good part of the first message last Sunday exploring, and you heard this repeated many times, that all God's ways are justice. Just and upright is he. Can we get that PowerPoint up there? And today, uh, we're going to be exploring the natural question that follows, which is, how do God's just ways reshape and redeem our ways? Which is why the the title for today's message is uh, The Justice of the Justified. It's a little bit of a mouthful, but uh, just to recap last week, we closed with the reminder that God has, in fact, made the impossible possible. That is, he's made a way for sinners to actually be justified. That is, made righteous, not by our works, but by faith through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, who is our Emmanuel, our God with us, who also revealed himself to be our true brother's keeper at the cross, giving his sinless life as a ransom for, for ours, Right, to deliver us from the bondage to sin and death by actually taking upon himself the just penalty for all of our evil, all of our sin, our idolatrous injustice. And through the cross of Christ, not only do we become united to Jesus in his death, but we also become united with him in his resurrection life. Right? We, which means this, We are now, this very moment, if you have repented and believed in the gospel, you're a new creation in Christ. And even today, you are being conformed to his likeness in perfect righteousness. This is the reality that that we live in that is the the thing that kind of uh, shapes our whole existence this very moment. So with that in mind, uh, let's, let's come back to this question. How do we live as a people justified by faith? How do we live as a people made righteous by his grace? Well, uh, as you might expect, the justified are actually called to live a just life. And that's because Being brought into a righteous relationship with God also means we seek to live in righteous relationships with one another. So, here's what the Lord desires from his people according to the prophet Micah. Micah 6, verse 8. This is a famous one. Go ahead and read it. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So Micah tells us what the Lord requires of his people, what's good, in three parts, which are inseparable from one another, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, Being such a famous passage that we've heard many times before, uh, and it often serves as a proof text for why Christians are called to do justice, 
I want to say that I think the most often neglected or maybe dangerously assumed part of this is the third part, to walk humbly with God. And we mustn't neglect it because this is actually the foundation as well as the destination. That's what the sum of what life is all about and who it's all about. It's about God and walking humbly with him. Now, how does one actually walk humbly with God in this age? I've already hinted at the way that God has provided by repenting and believing in the gospel to walk humbly with God and Jesus Christ. There's no other name under heaven or earth by which we must be saved. There's no other way to be restored to full fellowship with God other than in Jesus Christ. So, I think now's a good time to address this question of what then is exactly the relationship between justice and mercy? Right? And you, you've probably heard something like this argument that justice is different from acts of mercy. Right? Justice is the stuff that you have to do, uh, that you have no option but to do. It's, it's, it's often about retribution or punishment. And mercy, mercy, that's, that's referring to the optional stuff, right? Like doing acts of charity, often when you feel like it. You know, this is the stuff that you do around Christmas time. Well, I think that's something of a serious, unfortunate misunderstanding. And one of Jesus' parables uh, from Matthew chapter 18, I believe helps clarify the, the matter. It's the parable about the unforgiving servant. I'm sure many of you are probably familiar with it, right? But let me quickly recap it. Uh, Jesus tells us a parable about the servant that has totally mismanaged his master's money, right? He has racked up an absurd amount of debt 10,000 talents, which in today's money is the equivalent of a couple billion dollars, <laughs> right? Point is, it's an insurmountable, impossible, and almost criminal amount of debt that the servant has, has, has built up. And uh, right as the servant and his family were about to be sold off to, to start paying down this debt, can imagine this miserable servant comes to the master begging for mercy and you know what the master actually takes pity on him and shows him mercy this extravagant unheard of mercy and actually forgives this insane multi-billion dollar debt but then what does this forgiven servant turn around and go do next? Go to Starbucks and pay it forward? No. If only. We're told he goes to one of his fellow servants who owes him some money, a microscopic amount compared to the amount that he owed his master. We're talking like to the sixth place decimals, right? In comparison and basically shakes down his fellow servant for this money, for this debt, and then he has him thrown in jail for not paying up. The forgiven servant shows no forgiveness. 
And then what do you think happens? The master hears about it. And guess what? This is the gravest injustice that he doesn't show mercy when he's been shown such mercy. And this unforgiving servant comes to meet his well-deserved just fate. So uh, I present that as an answer to the relationship between mercy and justice, at least for us as believers who've received such extravagant mercy. Because here's what's justly required of us. If you say you believe in God's grace, his forgiveness, mercy is justly required of us. Anything else would be an injustice in light of the gospel. So mercy and justice, they're really two sides of the same coin. And apparently the Lord has an infinite amount of wealth and grace to spare. Now, the cross, I would say, is also the ultimate example of this, where somehow perfect justice also meets with, with uh, perfect extravagant mercy, all on account of what Jesus has done. Now, keeping the cross in view, I want to jump right into the three important aspects of biblical justice. All right. Now, uh, it's not to say that there aren't more. It's just that we're mere mortals, and you guys don't want to be here for 10 hours, and I don't want to talk for that long. So we're just going to cover these three foundational facets of biblical justice, the first one being generosity, and then two, fairness, or what is often referred to as equality, and then three, advocacy, or what I like to refer as intercession. But before we move on, I also want to give credit where credit's due. I've, I've heavily gleaned from the, the outline and work of, of Tim Keller, and I'm just adding some commentary throughout. But without further ado, uh, let's look at the first aspect of biblical justice, which is generosity. Now, generosity, this primarily has to do with how we steward material things like uh, money and property. And the key word there is steward. Because here again is where the biblical vision of justice differs from the messages of the world or the greater culture. For instance, you have on one side the secular individualists who will say, your money belongs to you. You are sovereign over them. And then you have on the other end the, the secular collectivists who will say, your money belongs to the state. Your money belongs to all of us. You get no ultimate say over any of it. And what the Bible asserts is that neither of those are true. And here's why. Because man is not at the center of them. God is. And because God is at the center of it all, everything is rightfully and ultimately his. All your money, all your stuff belongs to him because you even belong to him. And what he's created us to be is his stewards. It's this magnificent thing to manage things in his name, all these material blessings for his glory, for your benefit, enjoyment, 
as well as the benefit and enjoyment of others. So let us read from Psalm 50. Psalm 50, verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle in a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Mine, mine, mine. It's terrible when a two-year-old says it, but it is wonderful when the Lord says it. All right, the next one, 1 Corinthians. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So here's the thing. The Mosaic Law doesn't do away with things like social class. It does not demand the equalization of all material wealth. But neither does it blindly endorse survival of the fittest market economics. Such man-made solutions to our problems ultimately miss the point, yet again, about who's at the center of all reality. And who also happens to know what people's needs are and what their calling and designation is in this life? Isn't it a comfort that we don't have to keep score the way the world keeps score? That the Lord actually knows the span of all, all, all our lives and, and, and even every hair upon our heads? But that said, you know who God is especially mindful of? Who he's especially concerned about? And it's so abundantly clear throughout the whole testimony of Scripture. God especially cares about the weak and the downtrodden. And he takes it very personally and seriously as to how their material needs in this life their need for food, medicine, clothing, shelter, how those things are being met. In keeping with that, here's an example of, of how God would want his people to manage their economies in the Old Testament. Uh, and this was unheard of, even back in their uh, ancient Near East context. And I'd say it still is. Um, but every seventh year, the Sabbath year, all financial debts were canceled and forgiven. <laughs> now, if I were a money lender in that context, I'd be very mindful of which year it was. Um, and then on top of that, every 50 years in the year of Jubilee, all the original land allotments, no matter how great the amount of debt that was on them, would be returned, would go back to their original boundaries and their families. You know how amazing and unheard of this is, that God would codify this into law? Well, it's because it first recognized that all this land was God's, right? And he did what he wanted to do with it. And two, no matter how terrible life could sometimes go for families, you'd have good years, you'd have bad years. 
And no matter how deeply they uh, got into debt, the year of Jubilee was this uh, once-in-a-generation opportunity for families to start over, right? To have this hopeful new beginning. Doesn't this just scream gospel, right? How the, how the gospel is often echoed in the law, how our God is a God of second chances, how he's about the merciful forgiveness of, of seemingly insurmountable debts, how he loves to restore people to lands that apart from his grace would just be lost forever. After all, what do you have that you did not receive? Now, also in the law, uh, there were laws where landowners were not allowed to maximize every ounce of profit for themselves, but they had to leave parts of the field unharvested so that their workers, uh, as well as people from the most impoverished groups, um, the immigrant, the fatherless, the widow, could labor and glean. That is, work to feed themselves off of the fields. Now, there were also laws in place that protected landowners from those who would abuse this gleaning um, right and glean excessively. Um, As I said at men's retreat, I think human nature is such that we're the kind of people who will go to a buffet and stuff ourselves sick and then sneak food out of it after. Um, Those rolls just fit so well into my pocket and they're... They keep pretty well. Am I the only one that... <laughs> Maybe. I know you all do it with ice cream. I've seen it. Uh, now, there are a lot more passages that speak to this very issue. But what they all demand is that we honor and serve God by honoring and serving those made in the image of God. That's a non-negotiable when it comes to worship, which is why I had uh, Isaiah 58 read as our first passage. And this chapter reminds us that, that no matter how good our worship feels or how sincere it feels or how good it looks on the outside, if there is gross injustice in our midst, if you're oppressing your workers, if you're violently committing injustice against them, God deems any and all such worship false. He does not accept it. So let's move on to the next facet of biblical justice, which is equality or or fairness for all. Now, this is a hot topic, hot word in our culture, and it's thrown around in, in a lot of radical ways. But honestly, the biblical vision of equality or fairness is even more radical I'd say, than what the culture has to say about it. But it's radical in the best way. Because once again, the vision of biblical equality is rooted in who God is and how every person is made in his sacred image. So that means we treat everyone with dignity according to the same standards, regardless of class, race, religion, ethnicity, nationality, gender, a political party, or any other social category. Here's what Leviticus says. 
You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Just imagine if we could somehow just just remove bribery and partiality from human government. Can you imagine the immense improvement in the state of the world for every single one of us? I'm not saying things would be perfect, but imagine the delight of living in that kind of world. But coming back to this biblical idea that every human being has equal dignity and worth before the eyes of the Lord, this idea that we modern Westerners often presume it was unheard of in the world, in the scope of human history before the biblical witness. Secular sociologists and historians have affirmed this. I'm not trying to make a bold, novel argument. And just for comparison, um, have, have any of you heard the, the co- about the Code of Hammurabi? It was an ancient Near Eastern law code out of Mesopotamia, you know, the cradle of civilization. Here's an example of how it valued people. It had laws where if a rich person of higher status happened to murder a poor person of lower status, the penalty was merely financial. But if they murdered someone of equal status or wealth, the penalty was death. Oh, the injustice. And then moving on to the Roman Empire of of Jesus' day, you would have basically been looked at as a crazy person to say that the poor and the weak had equal intrinsic value as everyone else, that the slave is the same equal or is equal to Caesar. You're a crazy person. And that's just not an idea that is self-evident or comes naturally to any of us. And you know that this is especially true if you've ever been through junior high or high school, right? Um, Just go beyond the lip service and, and really get to see what human nature is like. All the ways that we establish these pecking orders, make all these evil distinctions amongst ourselves with with self-seeking intent, and always at the expense of honoring the image of God in one another. Now here's an example of what the Bible assumes about equality or fairness from beginning to end. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. And no one has lived out this ideal better than our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he's the example par excellence of this. And he often went against the grain of even his own popular Jewish culture uh, by conferring equal dignity to Um, and respect to all types of shunned, inferior people groups of of his day, including, but not limited to, Samaritans, Gentiles, unclean social outcasts like lepers, prostitutes, tax collectors, the list goes on and on. You hear 
your group listed in that list? Yeah, Gentiles, <laughs> most of us. And Jesus also repeatedly urged his disciples to show hospitality to the poor. This was shocking, too, because showing hospitality meant you were recognizing that person as your equal. And mind you, uh, the popular assumption of Jesus' day, and I'd say ours too, pretty much, is that the poor were often people who earned or deserved their suffering on account of some sin or foolishness that they or, or others near them committed. But when you look at your own screw-ups and you take honest account of the mercy that Jesus has shown you, how absurd is it for us to look at others who may have indeed screwed up their lives uh, by bad decisions and sinful choices and look at them and somehow approach them as if they're lesser than you? The gospel demands fairness, but it's a fairness that once again is rooted in mercy. Because here's what's fair. Here's God's fairness. None of us get what we deserve. We're all equals when it comes to our need for his grace, aren't we? So now I want to move on to the final expression or facet of biblical justice, which is advocacy. I also refer to it as intercession. Now, have uh, any of you ever traveled abroad to a place where you didn't know the language? Now, I think about all the times in my life where I visited a foreign country with no real ability to speak the language or communicate effectively. And what I was so thankful for, and what I always had there, because I likely wouldn't have gone there without, without this, was I had a translator. Right? I had someone who would be a voice for me in that foreign place. Because I can distinctly remember the times where I'd be without my translator. Sometimes it was my wife. And without my interpreting voice, I just remember feeling so anxious. And maybe you can relate. A bit lost, oddly vulnerable. So, yes, biblically, we're not supposed to show any partiality and be a people of fair and equal treatment. And yes, I get that. But what we're supposed to be is a compassionate, merciful voice, an interceding advocate for the poor, the weak, the powerless. Now, the rich and the poor, once again, they are certainly equals before the Lord. And I'm not trying to be smart here, but the, the rich don't often need you to speak up for them. They have a voice. They know the language. But as it goes, the poor, the weak, the downtrodden, they need intercessors. So here's, the, here's how the scriptures tell us to intercede or advocate for them. Proverbs Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. 
Blessed is the one who considers, that is, pays close attention to, the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. Proverbs 29. A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. A wicked man. Maybe this goes without saying, but sadly, we live in a world where many don't receive the rights that are due them. And I'm sure at some point in our lives, we've all been in those shoes. But how do we really see the particularly vulnerable? What types of people do the scriptures identify as being most vulnerable and in need of such advocacy and intercession? Well, uh, it's typically these three, the fatherless, the widow, who you can kind of understand as those that are poor materially and socially, and the sojourner, that is, the foreigner, <laughs> uh, those who have national ethnic roots uh, different from your own. Um, I'm just pointing myself, you know, in the context of traveling to somewhere else, but I'm a Spokenite through and through. Uh, now, there is, there are plenty of contemporary parallels and overlaps here. And here are some relevant passages uh, speaking about these three groups. Deuteronomy 10. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment and pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. Therefore, I command. Now, just remember, who is a supreme and true advocate? of the truly vulnerable and oppressed people groups? It's not ultimately the self-righteous mobs on the left and to the right on social media. Good news. Rather, it's the Lord. It is the Lord. Next, uh, Deuteronomy 10, 18. He He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves a sojourner, giving him food and clothing Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Notice how the Lord commands his people to not pervert justice for those oppressed people groups and instead actively pursue justice on their behalf because they too once were severely oppressed people. They were once slaves and sojourners in Egypt. That's what you're Never supposed to forget. Hashtag never forget. Coming back to the Matthew 18 example, if you've received such mercy, how can you not seek the same for others? It would once again be the height of injustice to not do the same because you were once just like them. But sadly, that wasn't Israel's story. Once again, on account of their idolatry, they went from being oppressed sojourners to those that often oppressed sojourners. They totally lost the plot. So the pursuit of biblical advocacy is ultimately carried out by people who have experienced deliverance from the slavery to bondage to sin and death which means our advocacy ultimately comes from a place of gratitude, deep sympathy, 
empathy. Not, not guilt, not self-righteousness. Advocacy or intercession. It's ultimately about sharing the joy of God's rescue. That's what we're about. This is a joyful calling. And this uh, brings me to one of the most beautiful examples of advocating intercession that uh, I, I, I've come across uh, in the New Testament about the earliest Christian church. Uh, it comes from our New Testament reading. It's a story about the feeding of the widows. And here's some background you need to know about the story. Um, basically, the early church in Jerusalem, they were predominantly Jewish, but not all Jews were ethnically alike. There's some enmity, or maybe a parallel. It's like, ah, South Koreans kind of feel a little differently about North Koreans and vice versa. So there were first uh, native Jews born and raised in Israel proper, and they, they, they constituted the majority. And then there were Hellenist Jews who were born outside of Israel. They came from the greater Greek world, and they were the minority. And even though they had one maker in common, you can imagine some of the tensions between them that might, that might develop, right? On account of our sin, on account of our flesh. Uh, some might be tempted to feel fleshly superiority and as a result show sinful hostility, right? And then some might be tempted to fleshly bitterness, which also leads to returning of hostility, fleshly retaliation. Now, thankfully it didn't go that route because this injustice actually took place within the church of God. God at the center of this people. See, as the church was trying to obey the Lord and um, care for the most needy among them through the daily distribution of, of food to the widows. For some reason, and we're not given much in the way of detail, the Hellenistic widows were not getting their fair share of the food. Injustice. Don't know what to call it, what else to call it. But imagine the kind of uproar that you would see over something like this on modern day social media. Bring out the guilty oppressors. Have them atone for their sins. Just don't tell them that they will receive no mercy whatsoever. And that's what I feel like our greater culture is today. It's, it's a place that just demands atonement but shows no mercy. No mercy. Now, thankfully, the church is operating under a different gospel, the gospel of grace. And it's beautiful how the church responds in all this. Uh, the leadership is notified of what's happening, and they take honest uh, account of how it seems to be baked into the way or the system, right, of how they're doing things. So what do they do? They, they defensively deny and, you know, no. They, they get together with the whole church and they work together to make this right while 
prioritizing the main thing, the ministry of the gospel. So they go find some, some people with the right gifts and character to remedy the situation for their beloved widows. And they end up with this godly, diverse group of deacons who, who, who serve just in the daily feeding, right? Nothing extraordinary, nothing glamorous, nothing seemingly super spiritual. Serving food. And one of these guys, his name is Stephen, and we're told that he is a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And what Christian would not want to be remembered this way? And Stephen also happens to be a Hellenist Jew. And he also happens to be the very first martyr of the Christian church. I mean, this guy, just, just read Acts 6-7. He is a stud and um, just an amazing theologian. But you know what actually makes, I don't know, that stuff um, meaningful? It wasn't separated from his service to the widows. I don't see this often in the world. Now, I just want to close here by saying that I think what we have here in Acts 6, these seven verses, in light of the Holy Spirit and the gospel, we have a really awesome blueprint for a godly approach to uh, similar situations and issues that we might run into in, in this world within the church. What the gospel does is it frees us to take an honest look at ourselves from top to bottom, right? And then actually show grace to one another as we work together to seek what the Lord um, has given to us already to address these problems. However, he sits, sees fit for his glory, honor, and praise also that we can get on with it. Get on with what exactly? Well, as the early church addressed this speed bump of this in-house injustice among them, the story concludes this way. Acts 6-7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multipl multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. <laughs> I think this is so cool, right? As they love their neighbors as themselves, God's word went out more compellingly from amongst them. Right? Even, even some of the Jewish religious elite, the priests, who probably had beef with Jesus before, are all of a sudden following Jesus. So, to conclude, why do we pursue generosity? Well, who owns everything? Who is the most rich, glorious creator? But who is also the one who has made himself poor for our sake? It is the Lord. He generously laid down everything, humbled himself as a servant, giving his very life for not the most worthy, but the least worthy. 
So why do we want to pursue lives of equality and equity and fairness for all? Well, whose image is everyone made in, no matter how redeemed or corrupt? And what price? Was it little or great? Did God pay to restore said image? He paid the greatest price to restore and affirm the image of God in mankind, didn't he? And why do we advocate and seek to intercede for the weak? Let me ask you, when is the Lord not advocating for you, for us? What do we have that we have not received? Rejoice in your weakness, friends, because in Christ, that's when we are strong. And that's where we can actually meet people in their weakness. And this, this is just a a sliver of the just and merciful love that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. May we walk in the ways of our most blessed justifier. Amen.